Hi there. You are listening to a message recorded by High Point Life. To listen to more messages and to find out more about our church, head over to our website at highpointlife.com. Good morning. Now we have been doing a series um, uh, revisiting Lent. All right. So this is the run up to uh, Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. Last week, uh, Pastor Padi spoke about the Last Supper. So we're going to continue with this series this morning. Um, and it's something that we, we are familiar with, all right? A topic that we are familiar with is the thing up, the slides. No? Okay. That's the topic, betrayed. Now, there have been a lot of betrayals in history, all right? <clears throat> Among the more famous ones, is this scene. <coughs> this is a painting that you would find if you were to go to the Louvre in Paris. All right? um, it was one of the more famous betrayals in history. Uh, William Shakespeare wrote about this in his book, Julius Caesar. And uh, this scene is where the Senate comes together. Caesar, of course, is the emperor. And uh, for, for as far as Caesar was concerned, these are his men. These are his loyal uh, leaders, all right? His loyal Senate. But unbeknownst to him, they had already plotted behind the scenes to assassinate him, to bring him down. Because they find that he was not just arrogant, but he was a dictator. And so they wanted to bring him down. Among the people, among the Senate members, of course, many of them, all of them, uh, Julius Caesar would know, but there was one man in particular, his name was Brutus, uh, in the book, all right, uh, in Julius Caesar, in, the, in that classic uh, by Shakespeare. Brutus was Julius Caesar's closest friend. He was his buddy, so to speak, the one that he would talk to, his confidant almost, they would, he, would, he would share stuff that he wouldn't ordinarily share, with, ordinarily share with other people. He would share it with Brutus. And when the Senate turned against him and they came to him with their daggers and they were uh, stabbing him and he, he was dying in his dying breath, he looked up and he saw his good friend Brutus with his dagger as well. And Julius Caesar captured it this way. One of, uh, sorry, Shakespeare captured it this way. One of Julius Caesar's last words was this, that he pointed at Brutus and he said, et tu, Brute. Meaning to say, you too, Brutus? It's almost like, I can't believe that you could do this to me. That was the scene. You can see that he was holding out his hand towards his friend, Brutus. You too, Brutus. There was that sense of utter betrayal. I trusted you. Well, there, you see, the thing is this. It's easy to forgive an enemy. It's easy to forgive an enemy, but it is tough to forgive a friend. Would you agree? Yeah. It's easy to forgive an enemy, 
tough to forgive a friend. It's better to have an enemy who slaps you in the face than a friend who stabs you in the back. You know why? Because for there to be a betrayal, there has to be trust first. You see? An enemy, betrayal never comes from an enemy because you don't trust him in the first place. So the sense of being betrayed never comes from an enemy. Betrayal always comes from someone who is loved. Because for there to be a betrayal, there must first be trust. This morning, we're going to look at this man. All right? And so we're going to read Matthew 22, verse 20. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table. Now again, the scene is up there in the upper room. I'm just moving on from where Pastor, what Pastor Pati was speaking about, all right? When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the twelve. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, Am I the one, Lord? Now we look at John 13 now. That's the same story, same scene, all right? Verse 26. Jesus responded, when they asked him, Am I the one, Lord? Jesus responded, It is the one to whom I give the bread I dip in the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. Verse 27. When Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him. Then Jesus told him, hurry and do what you're going to do. So Judas left at once, going out into the night. Come back to Matthew 22, verse 31. Then Jesus told them, tonight all of you will desert me. Peter declared, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter. This very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. Now, we have read this passage many times before, and I think we are pretty familiar with this passage. All right? I want us to take a look at the betrayer. Not Saul Campbell, huh? Judas Iscariot. All right? I want us to take a look at him. There are, there are four things I want us to focus on. Number one, his personality. What was Judas really like? What was he like? I mean, he was part of the, the, the 12 apostles. All right? He was part of the, the initial group of 12. He was seemingly trustworthy, seemingly, right? Trustworthy. Why did I say that? Because he was made the treasurer of the group. Whenever they'd gone and people gave money uh, and all that, they would pick it up. And it was Judas. Judas was made the treasurer. And so he was seemingly trustworthy. But covertly, inside, unknowing, unknowing to others, he was actually a thief and very dishonest. In fact, the Bible says very clearly, John writes this, that he had been dipping his hands into that offering that they kept. When people gave money, and sometimes they gave money to give the poor, it would be um, 
because Judas kept everything, he had been pilfering from the money that they had. He was deceitful because he could put on a, he could put on a show. None of the disciples, other disciples, ever suspected that he was doing what he did. All right? Um, and so he was rather deceitful. He was also self-righteous and a hypocrite. John 12 tells us when the woman came and, and broke the alabaster jar, the expensive perfume, and washed Jesus' feet, uh, wiped Jesus' feet with it. It was Judas who said, what a waste of money. Wouldn't this money be better used if she had sold the perfume and given the money to the poor? <coughs> Seems so good. Wow, that's a great idea, Judas. How do you think of it? In his heart, outside he would say, of course, what for you use the perfume, expensive perfume to wash Jesus' feet? Water would do. This is a waste of money. But in his heart, he said, of course not. If you sell the perfume, the money you'll give us, what, right? For us to give to the poor. We distribute the money to the poor. Ah, I got money to I got money to take back. Self-righteous. Outwardly seemed wow, But actually a hypocrite. And of course he was a traitor. That we know. He feigned love on the outside. But there was nothing really on the inside. That was his personality. All right. Second thing I want us to look at is his privileges. Now, he was a privileged man. He was in a very privileged situation. Why do I say that? Because number one, he belonged to an exclusive band of men who were close to Jesus. You know, there were so many people. You, you, you read the scriptures, you find uh, times where Bartimaeus heard the crowd roaring, and he asked them what's happening, and they said Jesus was coming. He yearned to go near Jesus, but it was so difficult for him that he had to shout from afar, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. There were people like Zacchaeus who could not go near when he saw, when he knew that Jesus was walking down the street. He had to climb up a sycamore tree so that he could catch a glimpse of Jesus. There was a woman with the issue of blood who wanted to go near Jesus because he said, she said, he can heal me, but I can't get near him as, as long as I, if, even if I can reach out through the crowd of people and touch the hem of his garment, I would be healed. There were people who wanted to get close to Jesus but did not have opportunities. And here there was this man so privileged because he was in an exclusive band of 12 people who were so close to Jesus. He also had the privilege of being present at Jesus's, you know, when Jesus was teaching. And Jesus was teaching not just publicly, but when he was teaching in private with just the 12 or just a small group of people. Judas was there present. You know, so many of us would have longed to have been in that position. How wonderful it would be to sit at the feet of Jesus. You know, like Mary, when Jesus visited that family. Martha would be busy in the kitchen, but Mary would sit at his feet, and she was just drinking in everything that Jesus was saying. Judas had that privilege. He was present at Jesus' teachings. Not just public teachings, but even the private times where Jesus would talk about things that were close to his heart. 
Judas was there. He also had the privilege of seeing up close the miracles of Jesus, how he fed thousands and thousands of people on a grassy hillside, how he had healed a blind man, how he had healed ten lepers, how he had raised up the dead daughter of a man called Jairus, how he interrupted a funeral procession and raised up the dead son of a, womb, of a widow. Judas saw all this up close and personal. And again, the privilege, he was selected for the office of treasurer. Matthew 10 tells us another privilege, that he was among the 12, but Jesus said, Bend them, Jesus put them in groups of twos and gave them authority over, over demonic activity, over the demons and over sickness, and told them to go into villages and heal the sick and to drive out demons. Judas was among those 12. Judas was given that spiritual authority to do it, and he went. And he would have, they would have seen things that happened because their authority came from Jesus. What a privileged man this was. His privileges. And the third thing we want to see is this. His problems. Obviously, he had problems. Matthew 22, verse 14. Huh? 26, huh? Oh, sorry, huh? You checked it already, yeah? Yes, sir. Before I, before I even turn to it, you checked it. Right? Terrible, are you? Okay, good. Matthew 26, all right. Verse 14. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, went to the leading priests and asked, How much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. From that time on, Judas began to look for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Under his problems, okay, there are a few things for us to notice. Number one, his covetousness. All right, he was a covetous person. He was greedy. For 30 pieces of silver, Judas sold his friendship with Jesus. You know, the love of money is a powerful motivator. The scripture says the love of money is the root of all evil. You know, some of these preachers that preach prosperity, yeah, they change the scriptures to say that the lack of money is the root to all evil. That is not biblical. All right? I've heard preachers preach that, the lack of money. You don't twist scripture. The scripture says the love of money. All right? Money itself is not the root to all evil. But the love of money is a powerful motivator. The love of, imagine, think of the impact the love of money has on our politics. All the issues we seem to have in our country stems from this, the lack of, the, the love of money. Think of the impact the love of money has on Christian businessmen when, we make, when, when, when they make unethical decisions. Because that decision would help the business. That decision would seal a deal. That decision will give you better uh, returns. 
unethical decision. Because why? We want the money. The impact the love of money has in family disputes, property, divorce, alimony, inheritance, until family members don't speak to one another. And they, and they get lawyers to get involved in family disputes. Why, at the end of the day, at the, bottom, at the bottom of the barrel, the issue is money? So the love of money is a powerful motivator. Our material possessions will either help us or hinder us. All right? It would either help us or it would hinder us. And our attitude towards money actually reflects our relationship with God. So if our relationship with God is right, then money becomes something that can help us. But if our relationship with God is not there, not right, then money would really become something that would hinder us. So he, he Judas was a covetous man. The moment he realized it's not going the way that I anticipated, he thought he could cash out. And he went to the chief priests and he says, you want Jesus? I know you're looking for the longest time you've been looking to nail him. I can hand him to you. But it would cost you how much? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. Second one, his confusion. And we talk about his problems, right? His confusion. Now, could it be, and the scripture doesn't tell us this, all right? Um, so we are not reading it from scripture. We are trying to gather this behind the words, all right, of scripture. Could it be that Judas thought that Jesus was going down the wrong road? And uh, because he is the Messiah, we have affirmed him to be the Messiah. And surely the Messiah's role is to come and to deliver us. And what obvious thing that he needs to do is to deliver us from the tyranny of the Romans. But this Jesus, hmm, he talks about giving, render, rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. He, what is wrong with him? What is wrong with him? And so, Judas was becoming disillusioned. He was confused. Why? why? What kind of Messiah is this? How is he ever going to deliver us? <coughs> he seemed too passive. So Judas probably thought that what I would do is I would nudge him in the right direction because we want to be freed from the Romans. We want to be freed from them. Jesus did not do what Judas wanted him to do. And so Judas took matters into his own hands. He probably thought... If I can get, if, if, if I do this, and they come to arrest Jesus, then Jesus will spring into action. Ha! Huh, really? Do you really know who I am? And then it will start. What I expect would happen, would happen. It doesn't seem like it's going to happen if Jesus takes this road. So I'm going to, I'm going, I'm going to take matters into my own hands to trigger this, so that the overthrow of the Roman government will happen. <coughs> Question. How often do we tell God what to do? When things don't fall in line with our own expectation, 
we tend to question God's will for us. We ask, Lord, why? Why is this happening? I don't think, I think you got this wrong. I don't think this is the way it should have gone. And so, we try and take matters into our own hands. We try and do things on our own. We try to nudge it a little bit. Abraham did that, if you recall. When God told him, when God prophesied that he would be the father of many nations, and he looked at his wife and said, she's 90. It's not going to happen. So, you sure you know what you're doing? But anyway, I can still have a son. And so he went after his maid. And this is what happens sometimes. We, we question God's will when things don't fall in line with our own expectations. When faced with a choice of God's will and ours, we tend to choose selfishly. So that, um, and, we, we, and we will always be able to justify by saying, I, okay, I'm going to do this so that this will happen. God's will will happen. But that's not the way it works. God's plans will only work God's way, not ours. All right? God's plans will only work God's way, not ours. And the moment we go against God's plan and, sit and take matters into our own hands, we are in trouble. Okay? In many ways, we start to betray God. The third thing is condemnation. Matthew 22, 3 to 4 says this, huh? Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve disciples, and he went to the leading priests and captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them. Satan entered Judas. Satan entered Judas. And Judas committed that dastardly act. Satan entered Judas. This doesn't mean that Judas was just an unwitting victim in a satanic takeover. You know, people, there are many people who read the Bible and have concluded that Judas was merely a pawn in God's hands. That he was a victim of circumstances. That God's plan was for his son to die and so God used Judas this way. There was a musical in the 70s. I don't know if any of you have heard of it, Jesus Christ Superstar, written by, lyrics by Tim Rice, the music by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Now, I must tell you, it is a classic, okay? The music is unbelievable. It's, 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 a, it's a rock opera, all right? The music is, is amazing. But the message behind that entire opera was completely uh, blasphemous in many ways. Because they painted Jesus as somebody who was a victim. They painted Jesus as somebody who was disillusioned. They painted Judas as a victim of circumstances. And Judas ends up by saying, crying to God, saying, why did you use me this way? All right? Uh, which, which, which didn't happen, actually. That wasn't the way it was. Judas was not an unwitting victim of a satanic takeover. It was Judas who opened doors for demonic influence. He opened the door. He willfully opened it. Every time he dipped his hands into the money bag, 
he opened the doors to demonic influence. And that's why the chance to earn big money, 30 pieces of silver, he couldn't let it go because he had been opening doors. All right? So he wasn't a victim. This was something he brought on himself. But you see, after he committed the act, his condemnation, after he committed the act, he immediately regretted it. But it was too late. Because when he committed the act and the soldiers came and caught Jesus, he thought there would be a reaction from Jesus. That Jesus would turn around and say, okay, it's time for me to show my true colors. And he would start to overthrow them because he was powerful. But Jesus submitted. When Peter drew his sword and cut off the ear of one of the soldiers, Malchus, people like Judas would have waited, okay, what's going to happen now? The, the fight has started. Jesus healed the man and told Peter, put away your sword. Put away your sword. And Jesus followed meekly like a lamb that was led to its slaughter. And Judas realized that what he wanted to happen, what he hoped this would affect, that Jesus would suddenly, you know, show his colors and he would start to over, didn't happen. So immediately he began to regret it and we found he went back to the high priest. He threw the money at them and said, here, here, take it back, take it back. I don't want your blood money, but I, I don't, it wasn't stated in the scriptures, but perhaps he even told them, I don't want this anymore. Please tell your soldiers to lay off Jesus because I betrayed innocent blood. But the high priest would have said, it's too late. The process is on. They've caught him already. We cannot release him now. There has to be a process. It's too late. And so he was filled with regret. See, whether it is demonic or our own sinful nature, it is the scope, it is within the scope of our own wills to yield or to resist. All right? So we don't go around blaming the devil for everything. It is within the scope of our own wills to yield or to resist. It happened in the Garden of Eden. The tempter was there, yes. The devil came to Eve. But it is within the scope of Eve's will to yield or to resist. And so it is with all of us. So it was with Judas. The result when we yield is always the same. Regret and condemnation. You see, you cannot play with sin and not pay the consequences. You can't do that. Sin will always have consequences. There, was, there is a stark contrast, contrast between Judas and Peter. Both names were mentioned by the Lord at the supper. Right? There was a sharp contrast between the two of them. Both were called by name at the supper. Both betrayed Jesus. One repented and was reconciled. The other was remorseful, but not repentant. Because he felt, Judas felt there was no way back for him. There was no way back for him. He was remorseful, but he wasn't repentant. The fourth thing, the fourth point, his punishment, okay? 
We talked about his problems and now his punishment. First of all, there was despair. There was despair. Judas realized he made a grave mistake. He tried to undo his way. He tried to undo it his way. Went back to the high priest, flung the money, and said, I don't want this anymore. Take it back, take it back. He tried to undo it, but it was his way. In the end, it was futile. He lost everything. He lost his plan. He wanted the Romans to be overthrown. That plan was gone out of the window. He lost his friends. He lost his money, the 30 pieces of silver. He flung it back at the feet of the high priest. But he also lost his self-worth. He lost everything. All right? Despair. I have, I have sold innocent blood. I have sold innocent blood. He lost his self-worth. So there was not only despair, there was death. The Bible tells us, second one, not death. The Bible tells us that Judas hung himself. And Acts, in Acts, Luke writes that it was not just an ordinary hanging. In fact, when he hung, I don't know, the Bible says he fell headlong. Probably the, the rope snapped. He fell headlong, head on, and the Bible says that his insides burst open and his intestines came out. He, he died a very gory death, right? He hung himself. Now, what drives a person to commit suicide? Temporary insanity? Yes, because at the end of the day, you, 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 there, you, have, you, you despair because there's a complete loss of any hope at all of, of bouncing back, of coming back from this. And so you reach the end of the rope, you don't know what else to do, and for you, this is the way out. You take your life. Judas reached that point, that he felt there was no way back for him, there was no hope for him, and so he took his own life. Judas was somebody who had a distinct advantage over so many others. And yet, his life ended poorly, unfulfilled. Scripture tells us in Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we have prophesied in your name. We have cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. The fourth thing was this, damnation. Not just death, but damnation. The scriptures are clear. The scriptures is clear that Judas went to hell. He went to hell. Judas was a close follower of Jesus. He was a close follower. Listen very carefully. He was a close follower of Jesus, but he was not a believer of Jesus. He didn't believe. He was close, but he wasn't a believer. He was in close proximity to Jesus, but he didn't have an encounter with him. This is something I want to ask us. 
Some of us were born into Christian homes. For generations, we, our families were Christians. You may be somebody who, was, who came to church when you were very young as a baby. The parents brought you. And you have always been, you have always been a church person. Some of us may even be on duty rosters in church. Judas served. He was treasurer. He had gone out into villages with a partner, and he had, he had healed people, cast out demons. He had done that. He served. He was in that company, that exclusive band of of men. He was close to Jesus. He had access to Jesus. But no real encounter with Jesus. In his heart, there was nothing. You may be one like that this morning, and I want to challenge you, whether you're listening online or you're here. Is Jesus real to you? Are you a follower? You, you are found in the company of God's people. You are in the church. You are serving on some roster. But you have never really had a real relationship with Jesus. Jesus is somebody you've heard about in church. And you say that, yes, I belong to, to this band of people. I, I am a Christian. This is whom I follow. It's not about following. It's about believing. It's not just about following. It's about believing. It's about saying that I am committed to this man. I have a relationship with him, with Jesus. He's real to me. I know him. Not just I know about him, I know him. And that is, that's what, make, that, that's what makes the difference. Okay? That's what makes the difference. We need encounters with Jesus. Now, you are one who have never, you, could ne you sit down and you think and you could never pinpoint exactly when you gave your life to Jesus, when you invited Jesus into your heart, when you began a relationship with Jesus that is real, that is alive, that is active, that is happening even now. Get that right first because this is critical, critical. You need to have a relationship with God, with Jesus. So I'm going to end with six take-homes this morning. All right? Number one, to spurn what has been entrusted to us is betrayal of God. Okay? All of us have been entrusted. You've been entrusted with what? With your families, with your jobs, with money, with time, with gifts and talents. Most of all, you've all been entrusted with the gospel. I told you, I began by saying, there is no betrayal if there's no trust, right? When God called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, 
when he called a people who were no people and made us his people, when he gave us his name and calls us his sons and daughters, he's entrusting us. And if we have managed our families poorly, if we have not been using our gifts and talents for God, if we have not been using our time for Him, if we have not been using our, 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 our place in the, in the office for Him, or in schools, or colleges, or whatever, if we have not been accountable for the money that, we, that God has blessed us with, and most of all, if we have not been faithful with the gospel that has been entrusted to us, we are betraying him. We are betraying his trust. That sounds pretty harsh, but that's the truth. That is the truth. So before we point a finger at Judas, let God speak to our hearts. Maybe there's a real need for us to come to God this morning and tell him, Lord, I'm so, so sorry. I've not been faithful. God has entrusted you with a role to play in this church. You're not here to warm the seats. None of us are. We've all been called into the body of Christ to be a functioning member in the body of Christ. If we neglect that, we betray the trust God has given us. Second thing, material things will either help or hinder us. Our attitude towards them clearly reflects our relationship with God. That's a take-home point. What does money mean to you? God has blessed me with this, I can sow into the kingdom. God has blessed me with this, I can bless others. Yes, God will take care of me. I, I, I will be more than adequately taken care of. That is God's promise for me. All right? That is God's promise for me. I can enjoy the money that God has blessed me with, but I am accountable to God for it. Our attitude towards money, if we hoard money, if we look at getting money through unethical ways because we need more money. If we tell ourselves, sorry, I cannot tithe, I cannot give God because I need to save money for my children's education. You think God doesn't know that you need money for your kids' education? You think God doesn't know that? You think God doesn't know how much it would cost in six, seven years when your child goes to university? You can only guess, but God knows exactly. But God sees the end from the beginning. God will provide. So this is about your relationship with God at the end of the day. Do you really believe that He is Jehovah Jireh? Do you really believe that He takes care of us? Because He takes care of the sparrows of the air and the lilies of the field. He will take care of me. Do you really believe? Or it's not going the way you plan, and so you have your own plans and do it your way. Your attitude towards material things reflects your relationship with God. Number three, yielding to temptation opens doors to demonic influence. Resisting them 
opens doors to spiritual breakthroughs. You want spiritual breakthroughs for your life? Stop yielding. The devil will attack you where you're weakest. Judas, his weakness was money. That was his weakness. And the enemy opened doors for that. Okay, he opened doors for the enemy, sorry. But the enemy provided him with the opportunity. The money bag, he keeps it. He looks at the money and for him, something inside of him, this is my weakness, I cannot tahan. I got to dip my hands in this. You yield, you open the doors to demonic activity. The devil will have a field day in our lives. We resist. The Bible says the devil resist, and he will flee from. The devil will flee from you. And you, uh, you open doors to spiritual breakthroughs in your life when you resist. Number four. You can be a follower of Jesus and not be a believer. You see, you can be so close and yet so far. You know, when I was growing up as a young man, a young boy, I was very aware of this, that we can be so close and yet so far. I came from a Christian home. I thought I knew Jesus. I thought I was a Christian until I had an encounter with God. And then I realized, I knew the Bible far more than many of the Christians who have been Christians for some, so many years. Because I've heard Bible stories ever since I was a kid. I knew my Bible. I could quote scriptures. My grandmother used to force me to quote chunks of scriptures when I was growing up. I knew. But I realized I can be so close and yet so far. And so, again, I want to challenge you. If you're one of those who are a follower but not a believer, get that right today. Don't leave here without getting this right. Fifth, regret and remorse condemns us. Repentance and restoration sets us free. Can I repeat that? Regret and remorse only condemns us. If you're sorry for your past and you're regret regretful and you have remorse and you stop there it only condemns you but if there is repentance repentance is not telling not just telling god what you did that's confession repentance is telling god what you did telling him you're sorry and vowing to turn away that's repentance i'm not going to do this I'm going to turn away from this. I'm going to change. Help me change, oh God. That's repentance. So repentance will bring about restoration. And that will set you free. Right? That sets you free. And finally, and this is something I want to say huh, at the end of the day. If we belong to Jesus, Satan cannot snatch us out of his hands. Okay? Can I hear an amen to this? If we belong to Jesus, Satan cannot snatch us. You know, the Lord, the Lord told Peter, Satan has asked 
that you be sifted. Remember that? Remember that? And then Jesus says, after you have fallen, when you return. So if Satan can, can cause you to fall, but he can never, ever snatch you from the hands of God. But you've got to come back. Judas fell, never came back. It wasn't that the devil snatched him. Judas willfully walked that way. He willfully walked that way. So I'm saying this. If you have fallen, if you have done something that you know you shouldn't have done and you are remorseful about it, repent and return. Because the devil will not be able to take you away from God. He can't. Because you belong to Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a seal. The seal means that you belong to God. You don't belong to the devil anymore. You belong to God. The devil has no claim over you. You don't belong to him. You carry the seal of God. Hallelujah. Satan can ask to sift you like wheat. Yes, that he can do. But he cannot snatch you. Sifting you, if you resist, you come out stronger. It is the making of you, like Peter. When Peter returned, he became the rock on which the church was built. Hallelujah. Snatching you, the devil doesn't get to do that. He doesn't get to do that. You're not his property. You don't belong to him. Isn't that wonderful? Lord, we thank you. And the scriptures say that he who has called us is faithful. That Lord, you called us despite of who we are. Despite our weaknesses. Despite the fact, Lord, that we have a tendency to go our way. But Lord, you called imperfect people to be your disciples. We read that in scripture. And we look around and we know that you still call imperfect people because you're the same yesterday, today and forever. You still call imperfect people. We look at the scriptures in the Old Testament. You called a liar like Abraham. You called a man given to extreme anger like Moses. You, you called an adulterer like David. And Lord, you called me. And you called us. You've continued to call imperfect people. And then, Lord, you say that your, our past you remember no more. You've given us a glorious future. You've entrusted us with gifts. You've entrusted us with a family in Christ. You've entrusted us with the gospel. You've entrusted us with loved ones and friendships and ministries. Help us, Lord. Help us to be faithful. I pray for those who follow you 
but don't have a relationship with you, that this morning they will have an encounter with you, that they will not leave this place, they will not put close the tea before making this right this morning. Help us, oh God, to end strong like Peter and not end in despair like Judas. We thank you for your word, for its relevance in our lives even today. We come to you and we give you thanks that we belong to you and the devil cannot snatch us away from you. That our eternity is in your hands and secure. We follow you with all our hearts and be faithful to you. And so Lord, this morning, we determine in our hearts. We repent of our old ways and we determine in our hearts that we will follow you and you alone. We ask this in your name and all of God's people say, Amen, Amen. Thank you, church. God bless you all.